This is Phil Corbett, and you are listening to The Wind. This episode is called Frontier Music. Dead Man, 1995, scene. The film opens on Johnny Depp, playing William Blake. He's sitting uncomfortably on a passenger train, wearing a plaid suit, clutching a huge suitcase. The film is in black and white and classic western landscapes silently drift past the window. The train's fireman, played by Crispin Glover, covered in soot from shoveling coal into the steam engine, approaches Blake and sits down across from him. When asked, William Blake says he's from Cleveland. Well, that doesn't explain why you've come all the way out here, all the way out here to hell. I uh, have a job out in the town of Machine. Machine? That's the end of the line. Is it? Yes. Well, I received a letter from the people Dickinson's Metalworks. I'll tell you one thing for sure. I wouldn't trust no words written down in no piece of paper. You're just as likely to find your own grave. Look, we're shooting buffalo. How do you define a Western? Because I know it has some kind of blurry edges. It sure does, but doesn't every genre? <laughs> this is Catherine Kalanick. I am a uh, professor in the film studies program at Rhode Island College. I'm the author of several books, uh, including two which are pertinent to the Western. Two of Catherine's books, How the West Was Sung and Music in the Western, investigate how composers have scored the West for film. It's... I think defined by time and place, ultimately, isn't it? A certain time in American history and a certain place in American history. The frontier, west of the Mississippi. You can update the genre, uh, of course, but the classic Western is defined by its time and place, I think. The Western at its core is a historical genre that generally takes place between 1850 and 1900 somewhere in North America, west of the Mississippi River. Neither of those parameters are impenetrable, borders rarely are, but that general time and place gives us somewhere to start. I emailed Carter Burwell, the composer of The Big Lebowski being John Malkovich, Twilight, The Born Identity, Fargo, and more relevant to us right now, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, No Country for Old Men, and True Grit. He said he was too busy for an interview. But he did reply. 
saying, The way we as a country approach the West says a lot about our view of ourselves. It seems to have become our origin myth. Although, what happened to everything before the Civil War? I can't answer why we have Western music and Western writers, but no such category for the century before or the one before that. Carter. Stagecoach, 1939, scene. The film is in black and white, and big white clouds float above the desert. Wagons and a whole cavalry of men on horseback bound across the land. To score the frontier, this wide open place, you use those so-called wide open intervals of fourths and fifths, and big long leaps in the melodic line to, you know, jumps, big leaps, and to suggest the vast openness of Western space. That kind of becomes part of the um, nomenclature. This is what constitutes what sounds Western, to film goers, and so these composers all tapped into that. So these big leaps in melody. This kind of melody subconsciously tells the viewer where they are. You are in the West. And specifically, it transmits the idea that the West is a big, wide-open land. That idea is baked into the film, whether you realize it or not. Well, yeah, isn't that the frontier myth, right? That, you know, you can make yourself on the frontier. Anybody can. And partly it's that the frontier is wide open. So it doesn't matter what you came from. If you have the right skills, if you work hard enough, you know, you can you can make it on the frontier. And the music in some ways suggests that openness. And that's part of the promise of the frontier, isn't it, right? That anyone can succeed there. And so goes America's origin myth. There's a big land out there across the imaginary line, and if you're clever and resourceful and you work hard, you will be okay. For a few dollars more, 1965. Scene. The man with no name, played by Clint Eastwood, adjusts his poncho as rain falls on the main street. He steps out of the mud into a classic Western saloon. This piano clanking away in the corner is a common occurrence in the Western. 
Similarly, a harmonica played on horseback or a cowboy strumming a guitar up against a fence. This is called diegetic music. Instead of an invisible orchestra playing off-screen, there is a character in the film playing this music. And this does two things. It signals authenticity by showing historic music played in the correct setting, and it also establishes the characters as a force for good, bringing music and civilization to a so-called uncivilized land. Rio Bravo, 1959. Scene. John Wayne, Dean Martin, and Ricky Nelson lounge around a cabin holding guitars and harmonicas. They slowly amble into a song. The sun is sinking in the west The cattle go down to the stream The red wing settles in her nest It's time for a cowboy to dream the Western at its core is a historical genre that seeks to present a mythologized view of the American past. I mean, listen to this. It's so romantic. Just my rifle, and me gonna my sombrero How could you not want to be here? Big clouds floating overhead, you in a canyon, just your rifle, your pony, and you. Chicago World's Fair, 1893. Pre-film, real life, scene. Here, there are two things pertinent to our story. First, there is a man named Frederick Jackson Turner stepping onto a stage to give a speech. He calls it the Frontier Thesis. In short, he says America up until this point has been entirely defined by the existence of the frontier, an imaginary line between the United States and the so-called wilderness. Our entire national identity rests upon this line, and our ability to move further across it, continuing to extract resources and generally expand the American economy and way of life. And finally, he argues, the frontier is officially closed. He chooses the year 1890 as the end of America's frontier period. The second pertinent thing happening in Chicago during the World's Fair is actually just outside the gates. Buffalo Bill Cody is hosting his Wild West show. In short, Buffalo Bill was a frontiersman turned showman who started a western-themed circus. It traveled the globe and featured highly specialized horse riding, displays of talent like sharpshooting, storytelling, and even war reenactments 
featuring white and native people reenacting battles that they had actually fought in just years before. Like, Sitting Bull would portray himself alongside a reenactment of the Battle of the Little Bighorn, which he fought in. All of this is to say, the very moment the frontier was declared closed, Americans were already bending it into myth. The Lone Ranger! Dead Man, 1995, scene. William Blake lays in bed in the town of Machine with a woman named Thel. Oh. He finds a gun under her pillow. Oh, watch it. It's loaded. Why do you have this? Because this is America. Her ex-boyfriend walks in and devastated to see that she's moved on, aims his gun at Blake. No, Charlie. I never stopped loving you. Don't! Phil dives in front of him, taking the bullet, and dies. It passes through her and still hits Blake's chest, but leaves him alive for now. So he pulls Thel's gun from under her pillow and meekly fires three shots. The third one strikes Thel's ex in the neck, killing him. Blake jumps out the window and steals a horse. leaving town and riding into the wilderness. The score for Dead Man was written and performed solo by Neil Young. And as William Blake rides into the darkness on the edge of town, he's accompanied by Neil Young's electric guitar sparse and distorted, floating above that imaginary line. He has come west to make himself, but in this moment, he overshoots the frontier, the end of the line, and has passed that invisible boundary into the unknown. Many of America's stories unconsciously have this boundary to wilderness built in. I'm Rihanna Milkar Scott. I'm the author of The World Doesn't Require You, which is a short story collection that's set in a town called Cross River, Maryland, which was founded in 1807 after a successful slave revolt. The World Does Not Require You is a uniquely American collection of short stories. It takes place in the fictional town of Cross River, which Rion created as the only town in America started from a successful slave revolt. The town borders a place called the Wildlands. It's an ominous patch of untamed land that is home to all types of threats, including man's only predator, 
Um, and you know, I think back to like uh, fairy tales. Um, the woods is always this place where where where, where you go and, and and dark magical things happen. I don't, yeah, I think that's why the wildlands clicked with me was like this idea that for an American myth to take place, there has to be a wilderness nearby. And this thing that kind of like is a just a juxtaposition to, you know, society or civilization. I mean, was that something that was in your mind? Not consciously. And now that I think about it, <laughs> but not, not consciously. No. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that makes a, a lot of sense, you know, of, you know, uh, and, uh, like I said, I, I imagine that I was probably going to write something where there were condos eventually built on it, but I, I can't even imagine writing that now. Um, I think that it, there's so much utility in it being this um, this untamed, untamed land. You know, and, and throughout history, you know, our history, there's so much that we don't know, so much that we that we misunderstand, we misinterpret. Um, uh, you know, so much that our children are going to look at us and, and our grandchildren are going to look at us and they, they got that really wrong. Just as we look at our ancestors and say they got that really wrong. It's sort of a metaphorical representation of Wildlands, of, of the darkness, of the, of, of the unknown, um, which, is, uh, which is beautiful because there's still stuff to discover. But, um, it, 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 you know, there can be a whole lot of ugliness in, in, in our ignorance. And there is a lot of ugliness in our ignorance. The frontier is the imaginary line between so-called civilization and so-called wilderness. This imaginary line started on the east coast of North America with the first European colonizers and slowly pushed westward, over the Appalachians, across the plains, into the Rockies and the Great Basin, on its way to California. Not only is the line invisible, it's also moving and porous, and there are people who have been living on the other side of it for thousands of years. When the land is shown as pristine or open, it's a misleading claim to justify America's encroachment onto it. It wasn't untamed or open for the taking, it was understood as unownable, and spoken about with the languages that the land itself had shaped. Stagecoach, 1939, scene. The wagon traverses Monument Valley, John Wayne sitting on the roof with a rifle, this incredible, iconic landscape unfolding in front of us. And suddenly the camera pans far to the left to a group of Apache warriors. Let's see if you can hear when the camera gets to them. Then cuts back to the stagecoach, and back to the Apaches. Historian Richard Slotkin points out that America frames its colonial history paradoxically as victimhood. Some of our most famous Western stories, Custer's Last Stand, The Alamo, 
or the Indians attacking a stagecoach are all stories where Americans lost. Slotkin argues that this is not a coincidence. Dead Man, 1995, scene. William Blake, after fleeing town, wakes up, having been found by a Native American man, played by co-star Gary Farmer. What is your name? My name is Nobody. Excuse me? My name is Xebiche. He who talks loud, say nothing. He who talks I thought you said your name was Nobody. We prefer to be called Nobody. I try to choose material that's going to, you know, help people think, right? Because I learned young, if I can make them laugh or if I can make them cry, I make them think. This is Nobody himself, Gary Farmer. William Blake. Is this a lie or a white man's trick? No, I'm William Blake. Then you are a dead man. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't understand. Is your name really William Blake? Yes. Every night and every morn, some to misery are born. Every morn and every night, some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to endless night. I heard an interview you did where you you were talking about the experience of fasting before Dead Man, and you mentioned unknowns are such a normal and important part of so many indigenous cultures and that the unknown is like the main thing that white culture can't live with and that it just has this propensity to devour all that is unknown because i think that that like the known versus the unknown thing is just so present in all these movies and it's just so present in a lot of your work too you know let it like sitting with the unknown yeah i mean it, it, it was accepted it was the great mystery it's uh it's something we learn potentially once we leave you know it, it's meant for that it's you're meant to live this life. The frontier occupies a precarious place in our national identity. So many of these films portray the landscape as achingly beautiful. They portray this pride and nostalgia for a time before it was marred by big box stores and freeways and subdevelopments. And yet, they portray the very moments that put that version of the future into motion. 
because the second European Americans stepped onto the land, money and violence quickly followed. William Blake, do you know how to use this weapon? Not really. That weapon will replace your tongue. You will learn to speak through it. And your poetry will now be written with blood. The Magnificent Seven, 1960. It's the most iconic Western theme. I really can't think of one that's more iconic than that. Yeah, me neither. And there's those big intervals for you. Right? There's the frontier. You, you embed it right into the melodic line. The 1960 version of Magnificent Seven is actually a remake of a samurai film. Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa. And I think the interesting thing I would point out to start out is how uh, the American film copied the Japanese one. I think that's really fascinating, right? Because people tend to think of these Easterns, the samurai films as somehow adaptations of Westerns, but really it's the other way around. And not only the American Western. The first Sergio Leone, Clint Eastwood film, A Fistful of Dollars, is a remake of Yojimbo another Kurosawa samurai film. Many Western conventions about hired warriors from the country's past are borrowed. Spaghetti Westerns, the colloquial term for Westerns made in Italy, gained steam in the early 1960s with director Sergio Leone and composer Ennio Morricone. These films tend to have one main plot driver in common. Money. A fistful of dollars, a few dollars more, the good, the bad, and the ugly, once upon a time in the West, all feature a protagonist who has used his wits and cleverness and skill to get richer though sometimes he's also motivated by revenge or honor. The winner of the Italian Western always deservedly ends up with the cash. These films remind us that at the core of Western expansion is the economy. This subgenre of Western holds a mirror up to the American version. But what's funny is the American version is already a mirror. Exactly. And when you think about that Western sound that's generated in the 30s and 40s for the classic Westerns, you're talking Dmitry Tiamkin, Russian, Max Steiner, uh, Viennese, and Richard Hagman from the Netherlands. And they're three huge composers in, in creating that sound. And none of them 
<laughs> our, our American, we're raised here. Our ideas of the West are conceived elsewhere and overlaid on top of it. Dead Man, 1995, scene. After killing pretty much every single character we've met, William Blake, on the run from bounty hunters, takes a turn for the worse. Nobody paddles him down a river toward an uncertain fate. Nobody? Is this the boat? They'll take me across the mirror of water? No. This boat's not strong enough for anybody. The riverbank is littered with the smoldering remains of indigenous villages. We're here to try and get some messages across, and certainly I've spent my career trying to commute to a large audience to kind of think a little differently about things and recognize who you really are, because America is classically a Native American. And and all your cities, all your states is all named, but you don't even know, you know, you don't even know your who you are. You don't even know what you're made from, all those generations that have been here. You don't have any respect for the country you came to and the way we lived here prior to you coming. No respect at all. And so, you know, I, I do my best and I'll continue to do it till the day I die because that's what I was made to do. There Will Be Blood, 2007, scene. Daniel Plainview sprints towards his exploded oil rig, black gold spewing hundreds of feet into the air. The tower of oil catches fire, a massive torch burning into the night. And what you see in the film score for There Will Be Blood Forget those beautiful fourths and fifths, those open intervals. Forget those melodies with the leaps in them to connote the beauty of the frontier, the wide openness, the possibility. This is like dit, 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 coming at you, this film score, right? I mean, it lacks all of those conventions of the classic Hollywood film score. And it, 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 it's, that's why it's a nodal point for me. This is where you can really hear how it's changed. Meek's Cutoff, 2015, scene. The film opens on a wagon train, struggling to ford a river. The frame is almost square, and though you know there's a sweeping landscape, 
it feels almost claustrophobic. And as the party crosses the river, the camera focuses not on the men in the group, but on the women. You know, the framing of the film is 4-3, so, and, and that's kind of like the bonnet of the wagon. Yeah. And so, but there's also, sometimes there's this sort of like boxed in feeling. I mean, sometimes the feeling is, it's very expansive and you have these great landscapes, but she also, she didn't want the whole movie to feel beautiful and pretty because there's, it's really unsettling at times. This is composer Jeff Grace speaking about director Kelly Reichardt. Jeff has scored two westerns, including In a Valley of Violence by Ty West and this one, Meek's Cutoff. Jeff says that Kelly originally tried to go with more traditional western music. When she just tried to put kind of traditional music with the film, the film, it, it, it felt like it was kind of getting, like it was hitting the audience over the head and was very like uh it was taking her out of the film and it just seemed like way 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 too much so he broke it down first of all like any western it is a period piece this one taking place on the oregon trail in the 1840s yeah it occurred to me that it's obviously a period film and there was no way around that so you had so i felt like that had to be the music had to be aware of that on some level. And then uh, I could see what she meant by having a, a more of a traditional score, just really the, the movie just kind of kicked that back. And so I had an idea that maybe I would try to go and use instruments that were available at the time and that could kind of what you would expect for um, a, a Western but but try to use it in an unconventional, maybe some unconventional way, so it wasn't so familiar. Jeff built these hypnotic, beautiful layers out of instruments that would have been available in the 1840s. Violins, flutes, cellos, ocarina, and modified piano. But then he simply played them differently. Fistful of Dollars, 1964. Scene. The man with no name rides into a desert town and dismounts his horse. The music is unlike any Western before it. Since Anil Morricone couldn't afford a full orchestra, he got creative. Using harmonicas, acoustic guitar, flutes, whistling, jaw harps, he created a world of sound that could have been achievable in the 1800s. And then added the sound of whips and church bells and finally introduces the electric guitar. A new voice on the scene, 
the safety of the orchestra has been replaced by this new sound, pushing the listener to reimagine their view of the American West. Gunshots and yelling punctuate these big sonic landscapes, adorned with the high ethereal whine of a human whistle, a mirage bending and swaying in the desert heat. The Revenant, 2015, scene. Leonardo DiCaprio lays still in the snow. He's playing Hugh Glass a real-life American trapper who became a sort of folk legend. And after narrowly surviving a grizzly attack, Glass is on the brink of death in a frozen, unforgiving landscape. The camera creeps in close to his shivering face, and he dispels a breath, fogging the camera lens. We then cut to icy fog rolling over the snow-capped mountains. In this cut, we see the connection between earth and human through wind and breath, but as the lens fogs up, we are also suddenly aware of the presence of a camera. We're reminded that everything on screen is legend, and we are engaging in the act of myth-making. Smoke Signals, 1998, Scene, Modern Times. Man, the cowboys always win. The cowboys don't always win. Yeah, they do. The cowboys always win. What about John Wayne? Man, he was about the toughest cowboy of them all, innit? Victor and Thomas leave the Coeur d'Alene Reservation on a bus heading to Phoenix. They're on the way to pick up the ashes of Victor's father, played by Gary Farmer. Victor points out this great point about myth-making. Sometimes, it's very manicured. You know, in all those movies, you never saw John Wayne's teeth? Not once. I think there's something wrong when you don't see a guy's teeth. El Topo, 1970, scene. Me amas? Alejandro Jodorowsky's experimental Mexican acid western. El Topo, or the Mole, is a man dressed in black, sitting in the sprawling dunes with his love interest, Mara. Yo no, 
Para que pueda amarte, tienes que ser el mejor. For you to love me, you must be better. The four masters of the gun live in this desert. You must find them and kill them. El desierto es circular. The desert is a circle. Para encontrar a los cuatro maestros tendremos que viajar en espiral. To find the four masters, we must travel in a spiral. The frontier is the imaginary line between so-called civilization and so-called wilderness. Not only is the line invisible, it's also moving and porous, and maybe it is not a line at all. Dead Man, 1995, final scene. Nobody has guided William Blake to the very, very far edge of the frontier, the Pacific Ocean. I prepared your canoe with Cedar Boss. It's time for you to leave now, William Blake. Nobody pushes the canoe off into the sea. Blake finally exiting the American West, passing through into the great unknown. We had this teaching back a long time ago, you know, native people in this continent, you know, there's stories go around that, you know, if you look at the medicine wheel, it's a very basic symbology within a lot of Native American cultures. It's basically, if you look at it, it's a cross, you know, with a circle around it. And all the races of man fit in there, the, the red, the yellow, the white, the black, uh, and all the shades in between. And, and, and all, you know, the direction of the four winds, you know, even the above, above and the below, below, you know, and all recognition of all that spirit world, all those ancestors all around us, you know, it, it, and, and when they came to America, they just had that cross. That's all they had. And, you know, I still say today, I mean, all you see when you go to Texas or Oklahoma, you just see these big white crosses out there, you know, and it, you know, I'd love to go just put that circle back around them because that's what they forgot. We, and we knew that those people were tribal people too, but that's what they lost their teachings. They don't realize that that circle's got to be around their cross, right? And we knew when we seen that cross, there'd be 500 years of suffering. And that's how it's become now to, to, you know, to 1492, now it's 2000, right? And, and we're supposed to be starting to move beyond that. And we are. You can see the movement among the people that it's people that are being a little bit more enlightened. Oh, we can't treat black people like we always have. But we have to continue to work at that and getting to that medicine wheel. We got to get there. And we're real close. And to me, this is the last bastion, right? of hate that's based on hate and anger and, and division and guns and, and violence. Thank you, Gary, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And you bet. 
See you later. Have a good night. Adios, amigo. If the Western is our origin story, we must deconstruct it. I think there is a tendency to write the Western off as just a shoot 'em up genre of good guys versus bad guys, cowboys versus Indians, man versus wilderness, but I believe they hold so much more than that. There is a lot of nuance and beauty in the Western canon and a lot of films that challenge and subvert the dominant narratives. Every story we tell about this country is built on this foundation. And if we are to understand who we are and where we're going, we must first understand how we got here. The author Richard Slotkin talks about demythologizing the myth-making process. Maybe if we acknowledge the way we've made these myths, we can begin to reconcile both their wishful thinking and their incongruities with the truth. Begin to reconsider how to tell these stories. And maybe we can begin to write new myths and pass through that imaginary porous line out into the unknown. The Wind, 2020, scene. Me, standing quietly in the sagebrush, snow falling on the desert. The sun briefly peeks through, between the clouds and the mountains, as it slowly sets in the west. is produced by me, Phil Corbett. If you skipped the prologue, I do recommend giving that a quick listen because it sets up the rest of the season. And the best way to support this show is to subscribe on your podcast app. If you have already subscribed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or tell a friend. This is a brand new show and any help getting the word out is very, very appreciated. You can also follow The Wind on Instagram and Twitter. And for a bunch of other cool stuff, you can go to thewind.org. On the website, I'll post links to Catherine Kalanak's books on the Western, including a new biography of composer Richard Hagemann, links to Rian Amilcar Scott's books, Insurrections and the World Does Not Require You, Jeff Grace's music, including his latest score for The Artist's Wife, and finally links to Gary Farmer's work, including Dead Man, Pow Wow Highway, Smoke Signals, and a bunch more. 
Also, I will post a list of every film I watched for this story. It was a lot. The music in this episode was entirely film music, except for one track from friend of the show Iklept Insan, and this song, which is from the public domain. Lastly, a huge thank you to everybody who helped get this show off the ground. Erica Worthlin, Joey Lovato, Lauren Baker, Sierra Jickling, M. Zhang, Emily Pratt, Mark Nesbitt, Eleanor Tolock, Mike Corbett, Sam Greenspan, Anjanette Damon, Anton Anger, Lucas Starmer, Dallas, Casey, Soren, and Sam from 20,000 Hertz, everybody who came over from Van Sounds, and so many more. Thank you. And remember to keep listening. Mm-hmm.